My name is Gillian Bowen. I'm the Australian Manager of Public Affairs at Chartered Accountants ANZ, or CAANZ. This is Small Firm, Big Impact. When they see, um, yeah, leaders actually taking the parental leave, I guess it gets them to think that they can, or know that they can take it too. Whatever happens in terms of career or whatever, I'll never take it back. It also shows that accounting is a really well-paid and really highly valued and trusted profession. And that's really important. It's really important for our students to see that. And also, you know, those kids in year eight, year nine, year 10 at the moment who are thinking about what kind of career they want to go down. It's the podcast giving you and your clients the up-to-date information you need to do your jobs. Each fortnight, I share resources, tools, and expert advice provided by CA, ANZ, and a range of people across our profession. So make sure you're following the pod in your favorite pod app. And if you've got an idea for the show, email podcast at charteredaccountantsanz.com. Today, we have Chartered Accountants ANZ CEO Ainsley Van Onselen and Charlotte Everett, NZ Regions General Manager. The topic, our recent member remuneration survey, but not just remuneration, the gender pay gap is on the list and the fight for talent within our profession, especially for SMPs. Ainsley and Charlotte, welcome to Small Firm Big Impact. Hi, girl. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, girl. It's great to be here. Look, Ainsley, why do we look at what our profession pays? And is often a taboo topic, a confidential topic. Well, Gil, I'd probably say for three reasons. Uh, firstly, for the individual member, we have about hundred almost 140,000 members now, so it's critical for them. And then secondly, our organisational employers, where, which, you know, which employ our members. And then thirdly, I think it's a social issue, a social equity issue. So if we look at the first, it's important for individuals to be able to assess their own personal situation, compare and contrast, if you like. So Mm. they can see what am I getting paid versus other people, either my age, my tenure, my gender, the size of the firm that I belong to, or even the sector, whether it's private, corporate, government, et cetera. And then on the flip side of that, for our organizational members who are employers of our members, this data enables them to be able to see the effectiveness of their own efforts over time. Um, And particularly, obviously, as we know, during a tight labor market. Mm. And then thirdly, I think it's just a really important social equity issue. Um, It's important to shine a a spotlight on these issues, such as the gender pay gap. And more importantly, to know what we do with those facts. When we find issues and challenges of this nature, we can then work as a profession to develop solutions to address it. Mm. Look, I want to go through a few of the insights from the latest CA ANZ remuneration survey. It's just been released. Charlotte, what does it tell us about the median total remuneration in Australia and New Zealand? Well, um, Gil, there was some good news there. Median total REM grew 11% um, in both Australia and New Zealand um, this year. So up to $150,000 in Australia and nearly $136,000 in New Zealand. So 11% is a pretty big jump. Mm. This really clearly shows what an attractive proposition a career in a, the, the accounting profession is. Um, not only is it is it really varied and interesting work, but it also pays pretty well, um, which is important to people as well. Um, I think it's really important to mention here that this is the median remuneration across all roles and for membership of all tenures. So new members right through to members who um, have been working for quite a while and not everyone in the profession is paid the same. Mm. So just to give you some examples, 
examples there, members who'd um, been working longer, of course, reported higher remuneration. Those with 15 to 20 years tenure reported total remuneration of over 225,000 in Australia and 170,000 in New Zealand. And that's up from 182k and 157 respectively in each country. And those working in commerce which is really a catch-all phrase for roles not in um, roles in an organisation that aren't in an accounting firm or a not-for-profit or government. So they reported total um, medium remuneration of 180,000 in Australia and 160,000 in New Zealand, which mm. is on on the higher side. And I guess we could contra- contrast that with those working in public practice, where um, their median earnings were 115,000 around in Australia and 103,000 in New Zealand. So. Mm. Um, that big headline number um, covers off lots of different variances. Mm. Look, Ainsley, Charlotte mentioned it briefly there, but what does this mm. growth tell you about a career in accounting? Well, I think it reflects the current fight that we have for talent in a really tight labour market. It's unprecedented, really. So I think the numbers reflect that. But then, uh, you know, Charlotte's have touched on this. It also shows that accounting is a really well-paid and really highly valued and trusted profession. And that's really important. It's really important for our students to see that. And also, you know, those kids in year eight, year nine, year 10 at the moment who are thinking about what kind of career they want to go down. It's important for them to see that actually accounting is a really valued profession. It's very prestigious. Mm. Well, I mean, year 12 12 results, I think, are coming out this week. That's right. Well, I'd encourage them to really, really think about accounting as a a future path forward. We we arrange for um, executive mentoring for a lot of our students, but also students who are still at university who are deciding what to do. And when I talk to those students, you know, I've been at UTS, UNSW, around the traps, et cetera, what I always say is that accounting brings the three Cs. So it's certainty of income, certainty of lifestyle, and certainty of a place in society. And the reason I say that is because we're about to go into some rocky territory um, and inflation is sky high. Uh, we're about to you know, go into uncertain, uncertain, I guess, economic times. We know the cost of living is really, really exponentially growing. And I remember as a country girl in the 90s that uh, my parents had a farm and they were paying 18% interest rates, mm. 18% on their, mm. on their farm. They almost lost the farm. They didn't, but they almost didn't. It was a really, really deeply uncomfortable time for them. And so when I was, I witnessed that, I was, I was in a public school, co-ed public school down south in Western Australia. And when I was looking at what career I wanted to choose, I could see the value in a profession because it gave those three C's, right? Certainty of income, lifestyle and a place in society. And so I think that's why, you know, it, it, this, you know, I would encourage people to think about that because if you're going into uncertain times, mm. entrepreneurship, although it might sound fun, you know, there's a lot of business failures that happen and insolvency statistics are showing that. But if you want certainty, accounting profession is fantastic. It's terrific for that. Mm. Look, Charlotte, let's dive into what the survey reveals on the gender pay gap. What can we learn there? That's a really good question, Gil. Um, So based on the average full-time remuneration, our survey found that the gender pay gap in Australia had reduced from 28 to 24% and in New Zealand from 34 to 30%. So it's still an uncomfortable truth, as Ainsley described it last year, but it's certainly heading in the right direction, which um, we're thrilled to see. This year, we also calculated the gender pay gap using the respondents' median hourly pay. Um, This revealed a a gap in Australia and New Zealand of 19% in Australia and 23% in New Zealand. So 
um, a bit lower, but um, still a sizable gap. So um, we use median hourly pay uh, to enable us to draw from a much wider data set and look at um, remuneration data from casual and part-time employees as well. So these are more often women and more often relatively lowly paid. So it enabled to bring us um, a much greater pool of data to more fairly reflect the gender pay gap. Mm, mm. Look, Ainsley, what's your reaction to this figure then this year? Well, I think the Improvement Guild probably gives me a sense of hope that mm. the work our profession is doing to close the gap is is showing signs of improvement. But look, I don't think I'll be celebrating just yet because it's still a substantial gap, um, particularly when you compare it to the OECD average for both those countries. Um, and so that to me, you know, is still not acceptable. And we really still do have a long way to go to get everyone onto the same page about the seriousness of the issue. But just noting, you know, it's still a very highly paid and highly remunerated profession for both for both genders, um, but it's the gap that, you know, I think we can really, really address. And what was really curious about the findings here is that the perception between men and women. So the majority of, the, of women who were surveyed, 70%, believe that there is a gender pay gap, while the majority of men also 70%, um, remain sceptical that a gap exists. Mm. And so when I think about that, I wonder why is that the case? But then I think it's because of this. I think when you don't have a lived experience of something, it's really hard to see it, right? So majority of men don't have this lived experience of a gender pay gap. So they don't really, they're not looking out for it. They don't see it. They don't witness it. They don't viscerally experience it. And you see that in everything, right? Casual racism, casual sexism, you know, in this case, the gender pay gap. Unless it's your lived experience, you're not going to be acutely aware of it. Mm. And a lot of it ties into as well, I believe, into understanding how the gender pay gap is measured and whether or not we're all using the correct or the same methodology. And it can be quite tricky to get an understanding of that. Charlotte, how is the gender pay gap measured in our survey? Well. In, in our survey, um, Gil, we use median hourly wage. Um, so I, I guess I'll go back to the beginning and say it's important to highlight that equal pay for equal work is really different to the gender pay gap. And I think that's where um, a misconception comes in for some people. And back to Ainsley's um, point she made earlier about um, different men and women having different views on whether the gender pay gap exists. I've actually heard a lot of people say, well, we, we pay the same for same the same role. There is no gender pay gap in our organisation. Same true. That's so true, Gil. And what they're really mm -hmm. talking about is equal pay, which I think was you know legislated in the 70s. That's exactly right. Not to say that it, it doesn't still happen, that equal pay is, is not awarded for equal work. But um, so I think it's a, a misunderstanding there. Um, many people think, well, no, there's no gender pay gap because we pay the same for the same roles. Um, although as an aside, our survey did find right from the very, very beginning of um, an individual's working career, a gender pay gap exists right from, you know, year one. So um, go figure. But um, so the, what the gender pay gap is in the way we've calculated, it's actually the difference in the average earnings of men and women across all roles in a workforce. So that's, you know, right from your most junior person to your most senior person. You can cut it different ways. So you can measure the gender pay gap for an organization, um, for an industry or for a, a workforce or, or even for a country. So 
um, for example, in Australia, I believe the national gender pay gap is 14.1%, and in New Zealand, it's around 9.2%. So mm. what it actually measures is the pay difference between all women and all men, regardless of their role, how long they've been working there, where they're located, all those other differentiating factors. And um, for us, we've calculated the gender pay gap, gap across all members of, um, or, or members that responded to our survey of Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand, so across a profession. Um, mm. So we had an unprecedented amount this year too, didn't we, Charlotte? I think oh, we had a fantastic year. response this year, Ainsley. We had almost 8,000 members respond, which is a really mm. significant wow. um number in terms of our survey and it just um, makes it just shows how robust our data is mm. so um so yeah but back to I guess there are a, a range of different ways that the gender pay gap can be calculated there's no uh, or there is best practice but there's there's not just one way um this year we align to the statistics New Zealand methodology so that uses median rather than average um wages so that's a, a small but important um, difference yeah, because median is the preferred metric um, when a data set has outliers. So um, a small number of very, very high earners, for example, which we definitely have in the accounting profession. So mm. that can skew the overall result. So, But but it, it is an evolving field. But um, mm. yeah. So now we've got a, an understanding of the sort of data that's in the survey. We've got the results. We've got an understanding on how it is that we've measured it all together. I want to bring it back now to what it is that Chartered Accountants is doing in this space and what it is that we're doing to help SMPs work out and understand why it matters and what it is that they can do to fix it. Ainsley, what is CAANZ doing? So, Gil, Great question. Uh, we're doing two things primarily. So one is advocacy and the other is education. Now advocacy, it's part of our charter that um, Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand advocates for the public good. So we're not a lobbyist, we're an advocate for the public good. And so this really does form part of that advocacy, right? In terms of female workforce participation, whether it's on a country scale or whether it's on a specific professional scale as, as this particular remuneration survey looks at. So that's what we're doing a lot of in this space. Um, I was very fortunate to be invited to uh, Prime Minister Albanese's job summit earlier this year where diversity and female participation in particular was really um, just part of almost every single conversation and every single topic that was on the agenda for the two days. So we're very much in the thick of that and advocating specifically uh, more broadly uh, you know, in, in media at the Job Summit, as I said, but also specifically in our assets such as acuity, our social media access, et cetera. We're, we're very much um, you know, in, in those spaces as well. We're also doing a lot of specific advocacy as well. And I'll just give you an example. So, so one is on the superannuation cap. We, we are leading the charge in this space in Australia in advocating for a lifetime cap on your superannuation contribution rather than what's in place at the moment, which is your annual superannuation cap of $25,000 per year. And why we're doing that is because it actively works against women who have for example, myself, who've taken sort of seven years out um, of their profession, so not working full time during that time, and so therefore not either paying any super at all or very limited super. And so then after, and, and it's called the motherhood penalty, right? So basically, there's a sort of pattern, KPMG did a great study on this, which shows that women, when they've got children under seven, 
generally wait until their children are seven or older, their youngest child is seven or older, and therefore able to go into the school gates themselves, and therefore not as reliant on sort of the parent being at home at, you know, and, and having to walk them through the school gate. They then go back into either full-time work or more active participation in the workforce. So then you've got these seven lost years where you weren't paying any super and you can't make it up because you're still stuck. So you're now on a higher income, you're now back earning, you're in the, sing the swing of things, accelerating your career and you can't catch up on your super because your annual cap is 25,000. You're actively disincentivized from doing that. So we're, we're really advocating in that space. And then finally on gender pay gap specifically, we've got a great toolkit, great resource for SMPs and for all employers, which is the gender pay gap playbook which is a really educative approach on how you can reduce the gender pay gap in your particular environment, whether that is a small firm, an entrepreneurial firm, a small accounting practice, or a big, or if you want to learn from what the big four are doing, we've given case studies in the, in the pay gap, uh, pay book, sorry, playbook <laughs> toolkit, which is on our website, and you can see all of those. And there's also no one silver bullet, right? Every firm has a different approach. And so we outline all these different approaches and you can kind of pluck, if you're, you know, if you're SMP, you can pluck what you think might work for you and your organisation. And, and the reason why I think, you know, one of the other questions you asked was why is that important for SMPs? Well, it's really important because they're all fighting for the same talent as the mm. big end of town are, right? Mm. So, and the big end of town are actively, I, I, I've chatted to members down at Melbourne who are in public practice and they're actively, their talent, particularly that five, six year out mark, which are highly fought after, who have not only done their CA, then they've got years on the ground of practice, but under their belt. They're being actively poached from the smaller, medium-sized firms. So if that's happening, and you know, and often poached because of you know higher remuneration sometimes, but it's not just about rent. So fighting for if you're seen as an organisation to be actively one aware of this issue, do a gender pay gap audit, and we show you how to do that in the toolkit, and then show and visibly show to your people what you're doing to address it. Acknowledge there's an issue, if there's an issue, which normally there is, and then go about looking like you've, you know, doing all the steps you need to do to try and improve it. And mm. that will get you great brownie points with your people, with particularly your female employees, when they see that you're mm. actually, you know, actively trying to champion and address this issue. Mm. I'll put a uh, link to the Gender Play book in the show notes and it's got specifics in there about you know how to conduct a gender pay gap analysis to consider the causes of it to build a business case for closing it for developing some actions to then do that and it explains um, in detail how to go about embedding diversity and change in the culture of your workplace so check out that link it's in the show notes and, and don't miss it and read up there Charlotte I wanted to move on then to what our members think about the gender pay gap because we did ask them that too didn't we we absolutely did, Gil. And just before we do that, can I just mention another wee plug for our, our playbook? Um, and in, in addition to what Ainsley mentioned, doing the, the um, gender pay gap analysis, et cetera, you actually, to embed it in your organisation, you actually need to start, um, and we say this in the playbook, with having some discussion, you know, make it an, an agenda item at your board and your executive 
mm. um, level meetings and actually really discuss it. And like you said, show um, that you're actually taking concrete action off the basis of doing the analysis. Um, it's, it's one thing doing the analysis that certainly draws attention to yes. the issue, but actually doing something about it is so incredibly important. And that might be things like, you know, publishing pay for certain um, roles or really actually when there are promotions that are up for grabs, you'll find a lot of men will jump at them and a lot of women will sit back and say, actually, I'm not, I'm not sure, I'm not quite ready, I, you know, a, a hundred reasons why they wouldn't apply. So actually seek out those employees and tap them on the shoulder and have a chat to them and encourage them actively to go for, for those promotions. Um, but uh, the playbook has uh, lots of concrete examples that you can use to help to embed real diversity into your um, your work. But back to your question, Gil, um, what do our members think about the gender pay gap? That's um, a, a good and interesting question. And they certainly spoke to us loud and clear. So eight out of 10 of all the respondents um, said to us that they think it's really important for CAANZ to help address the gender pay gap, which mm. is um, fantastic, a fantastic endorsement of the really important work that we're doing in this space. Um, what I would say there, the, the operative word is CAANZ to help address the gender pay gap because it's not something we can do on our own. Um, we're doing some great work. Our survey highlights that there is a gender pay gap. We're um, sort of shining a light on it and we're opening up that discussion. But change needs to come from you know everyone within the profession. It needs to come from individual members and it needs to come from organisations as well. So um, we, we can be the, the catalyst for the change, if you like, but we need all of our members to, to step up and get on board. So I want to play you some snippets from an interview with the Vice President of Chartered Accountants ANZ, Tanache Kamangira FCA. He's a director at Deloitte Australia, and we've asked him about career breaks and helping his young son and helping him take care of his young son. Really fortunate. Deloitte has a generous parental leave policy. Um, you know, I had up to 36 months for each child. I was able to use 18, 18 weeks. So I decided to take it flexibly. So I didn't take it the first year. And it was partly a discussion between my partner and I because it was kind of like, oh, she was going to be home anyway for the first year. And then when she wanted to go back to work, it meant that because we've got some family support, um, if I took a day, she worked sort of two days, or two and a half, and um, we had her parents look after my son as well. So there was no daycare. So he hasn't, he's two years old and hasn't been to daycare and unlikely to go to daycare even next year because, because of the arrangement that we have. So yeah, it means I get to spend more time with him. And I don't think many people had used the parental leave the way I was going to use it, which is one day a week um, and supportive. I, I think, I think supportive in a lot of ways, partly because I guess there was still the connection to work. So I was really fortunate having the flexibility to use it over a period of time. Um, and I've actually really enjoyed it. You know, I come back into the office on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday and I'm like, oh, I'm here for some time off. <laughs> it, but I think for me personally, it gave me a, a different appreciation to what it's like to be a primary carer. Right. So when, because I've got, I had him every Tuesday for a long period of time. So, uh, you know, I have him on the weekends too, right? But I had him my, just to myself on Tuesdays. So, um, yeah, it gave me a good appreciation to what, what, what it's like 
to be the sole parent. And I just wanted to play one more part where you can listen to how his team reacted to what it was that he was doing with this arrangement. I actually think it's good for them to see people in leadership positions not just talk the talk, but walk the talk. Because quite often in organizations, you have policies and, you know, procedures, and then, you know, no one really takes, uses it a particular way. But when they see, um, yeah, leaders actually taking the parental leave, I guess it gets them to think that they can, or know that they can take it too, and not feel like it's, oh, I'm, I'm a bit scared to take it. I shouldn't ask. But yeah, because I'm taking it, it's, anyone should be able to take it too. And he goes on to say some amazing things about the impact that it had on his family life. I asked the boss this and she said, <laughs> she said um, she thinks it's made a fundamental difference to not just the family life, but relationship as well. Um, relationship with my son, relationship with my partner too. So um, yeah, it's made a, it's, it's, it's made, made a huge difference, which is why I said I would, whatever happens in terms of career or whatever, I, I would never take it back. Um, and I plan on actually doing this for a long time too. So um, yeah, just it's it's been really, really good. Ainsley, what did you think listening and hearing all of that? I thought it was just beautiful. Um, I, when I was running uh, inclusion and diversity in women's markets at Westpac, that was one of the things that we really struggled with is exactly to his point. We had these policies and procedures in place, but we really needed men to be um, actually taking that parental leave and caring leave that we had provided for some time. And exactly what he said in terms of being visible as a senior leader, it's, it's amazing the shadow impact in a positive way that that provides to your teams and people around you. We often hear sort of in the female gender lens sense, you can't be what you can't see. Um, so you can't be what you can't see. And I think that is the same for men taking parental leave, right? If other men, particularly junior men, don't see their senior male leaders and colleagues taking parental leave, then how can they feel comfortable doing it themselves? There's going to be that stigma attached to it. So it was just real. I actually, my heart just sang listening and hearing what Tanache had to say. Um, and I also actually really agree with his point on the impact on family life in terms of improving the relationship, not only with your child, but also with your partner. That was the same with us. We were very fortunate, Pete and I, in terms of having similar type arrangements where we were both carers of our young children. And he did as many nappy changes as I did um, and as many, you know, mashed up carrots as I did and everything else. And you can see it to this day with our girls now, 14 and 16, that beautiful bond that they have with their father and will always have um, because of that really special time that he's had and continued to have with them ever since. So mm -hmm. I don't think that they just cannot be underestimated. And the more you get this groundswell of men taking parental leave, the more it'll become normative, um, like we've seen in other countries around the world. It's interesting, yeah, that the conversation there about challenging the norms, challenging what we think. Charlotte, what did you think about that? What do you think about career breaks? Look, I've, I've taken three career breaks myself um, yeah, and worked sort of 
in a range of part and full-time roles since I had my children, which was uh, my eldest daughter is 18 years old now. I think they are so important if that's something that's important to you. Um, and and I, I really enjoyed listening to um, what Tanasha had to say. Um, I, I remember when I had my eldest daughter, I was working um, at an investment bank in London and I remember having um, one of the, the um, women's sessions that they, they ran there and um, hearing uh, one of the senior leaders talk about career breaks and she said she had had two children for her first child she took I think um, three months and her lesson from that was it's very important to take a career break but maybe don't take one as extravagant as, and as long as that maybe a couple of weeks but definitely take one and I can remember being quite shocked and uh, <laughs> And when if I, people um, could have seen my face, goodness yeah, me. Was, well, I guess it was a, a different time then. It was, me, yeah. Um, a different industry, but uh, I, yeah, I I mean, if it's important to you, you should definitely do it. And we live, the, the times that we're in now have, have changed a lot since my experience 18 years ago. But um, it wasn't so much, and for me, again, in terms of career progression and the rest, I guess it wasn't so much career progression. Um, it wasn't so much taking a career break that affected my career progression, but it was more um, working part-time. And I think that's something that, um, again, that is changing now. So, mm. Ainsley, did you have something else you wanted to say on that? Oh, well, I had a career break um, as well, as I sort of probably mentioned before. So, and it's interesting because similar to Charlotte, I had some pretty interesting experiences. Like I was the only female partner at the law firm that I was at. And I had a really large um, jury trial coming up. It's a matter that I'd worked on, a particular piece of litigation that I'd worked on with the client for over, gosh, it was about eight years at that point. So I was really keen to be there at trial. I'd lived and breathed that case. So I offered to my um, partners, my fellow partners, when my daughter was um, only six months that I would be able to come back part-time in that last six to 12 months and work on the trial I specifically wanted to do that particular matter and then I'd like to sort of probably come back you know part-time or full-time I wasn't really sure at that 12-month mark and I, I was statutory entitled to have 12 months off completely uh, but they just weren't prepared to do the flexibility so they said no no we want you to come back if you come back at all in we want you to come back full time. This is my, mm. my daughter's only six months. And that was kind of unacceptable to me. So I um, actually ended up setting up my own practice, my own small, medium-sized practice. So I have lived experience of what that's like from doing all your own finances and, and not having that support around you. It's really hard to find the time to do both your billable hours and also your business admin. Um, but in the end, it was actually the best thing that ever happened to me, Gil, I tell you, because well, one, I was a salaried partner at that previous partnership, but this meant I actually got to you know, eat what I killed. And so I actually was earning more money, even though I was working part-time, the irony. Um, and secondly, I also did my master's um, while my kids were little and while I had this practice that I was running. And the reason why I mention that is because there's proven studies to show um, that if you do postgraduate study as a woman, as a female, you'll actually get about 16 to 20% higher income as a result. Now, the benefit of my master's, I did an applied finance because I found that kind of thing interesting, was that when it did come time for my kids were you know, seven, my youngest was seven, to have a look about what I wanted to do, it was either go back into full-time law as a partner, and I was talking to some firms at that point, or do something completely different. And I decided to go with management at um, one of the big four banks 
And if I hadn't done that masters, I wouldn't have had the skill set around to, to really probably have taken the amazing opportunity that I did, which then you know led me to being able to be considered to be CEO of this amazing organisation, Chartered Accountants. I so love Ainsley, understanding. Go ahead, Charlotte. Sorry, Gil, I was just going to say, so Ainsley, um, what I learned from what you just said is you just backed yourself and put what was important first for you and it, it paid off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've been re- reading and writing about diversity in professions for a long, long time. And I remember as a baby lawyer in my 20s, this female barrister explained to me what it felt like going from being uh, in a law firm to being a barrister. And she said it felt like jumping off a cliff, but there was a trampoline at the bottom. And I remember those words so distinctly when I was looking at creating my own small business to go, okay, it's going to feel like jumping off a cliff. And it did. Like it was very scary, but gosh, I had a soft landing. And yeah, you do. You just have to back yourself. Mm. I feel like this ties in well then as well, Ainsley, because you're mentioning about how you wanted the conditions in your own work environment to be correct for what you valued and what you Mm. needed. And that takes me then to the part of the survey where employers are considering and employees are considering more than money. And some listening along may scoff at that because everyone needs money, everyone wants money. But Charlotte, the survey did find out some interesting points on other non-remuneration-based employee benefits. What did it discover? Well, um, in short, workplace flexibility, which I don't think will be a surprise to anyone, <laughs> was, yeah, was the um, at the top with um, 73% of respondents saying that they really, really valued workplace flexibility. And I think to that, I would say not workplace flexibility now when you provide it, it has to be genuine flexi- genuinely flexible. Everybody provides an element of flexibility, but as an employer to set yourself apart, if you want to attract your top talent and this tight labour market, then it needs to be genuinely flexible, not just lip service. Um, Second, and interesting, but not surprising at all, is the quality of leadership. So 64% or almost two thirds of people said that to them, the quality of leadership was really important. And when you think about it, we spend a lot of our days, a lot of our weeks, a lot of our years um, with with our leaders. Um, And they say you're sort of a you're um, influenced a lot by the, the five people you spend the most time around. So um, having really great quality, genuine leadership that really um, shows that they care about you and they're clear and um, all those other important factors is, is very, very important. And then 62%, but I mean, you could almost say these were all pretty equally important was meaningful work and mm. again that will come as no surprise to anyone. We all like to feel that what we're doing makes a difference, that it's meaningful that it interests us. So workplace flexibility, quality of leadership, meaningful work. And Ainsley, I feel then that could tie in nicely with what SPs can offer future workers. And this ties in nicely as well with that skill shortage and with attracting and keeping employers, employees, and not having them be poached. What do we know about that aspect? Well, it's it's to Charlotte's point, really, Gil, that um, if you provide flexibility and, and choice in that flexibility, so have flex in flex, I say, not inflexible flex working, um, you'll be able to retain and attract your talent. And particularly retention is key in this, in this particular market. And the survey showed that you know, for those mid-career employees, so that 30 to 49-year-old bracket, that's where flexibility was really critical for them. And it's no surprise that our data at Chartered Accountants shows that women leave the profession earlier than men. 
And often that's because they're just getting that, sort of they're being left behind because they're not going through those senior ranks. A lot of this gender pay gap is caused by women not being at that really pinnacle senior ranks of the profession or in corporate. And, you know, if, if women sort of lose hope that they're not being treated fairly in the workplace and not being and not having transparent access to data, then that's what they will do. They'll make their choices and go elsewhere. You know, we've got the Tech Council of Australia really beating a drum pretty loudly to say, well, we have we don't really have as much of a gender pay gap as other professions and we've got all these great, great jobs. So come and come to us. So it's not like the profession um, should be ignoring this that they're really at risk of losing their talent not just to other accounting professions but to other industries and other um, other associations so we really need to be looking at it from that perspective um, in, you know interesting I think our younger employees they're looking you know sort of more for those prioritized career pathway opportunities they like being back in the office in many respects because they get that mm. one-on-one mentoring mm. whereas those with young families that really need to be able to balance that work-life kind of aspect where flexibility is key and if you can keep your workforce engaged, allow them to work the way that they work. So rather than being based on presenteeism and bums on seat, really look at actually output and productivity and teaching your leaders how to do that, how to lead based on output and productivity rather than wh- whether you can see people. And that's what, you know, that's the benefit of COVID. One of the great things from COVID is it's changed our mm. understanding of where and how you can work totally fundamentally transformed it so um and and flexibility we know from the survey was much more highly rated by women um, than men so again if you want to retain and attract your best talent which includes your female talent and not lose them either to uh, under productivity or under utilization in the workforce or to other firms then you know put your put your listening ears on and hear what the how they want to work Mm. God, Charlotte, we're almost out of time. Is there, is there any final piece of advice then you'd like to give to an SP who really needs staff or staff with the right expertise or they worry they want to keep their expert staff from leaving? Any final pieces of advice before we wrap up? We, you know, well, one little thing, um, Gil, we had one of the firms we interviewed for the Gender Pay Gap Playbook or a case study, if you like, and they tried, they really struggled to find um, employees. They were a small firm in the North Island of New Zealand, a rural area. They cut their working day to a, down to a six hour work day. So employees only had to be at work from nine till three. Um, their productivity went through the roof um, as opposed to not being able to find um, talent or employees. They now have a, a wait list and, um, you know, they're lauded as an example of a, a really progressive um, accounting firm. So think outside the box, be flexible, be really, truly flexible would be my Gosh, I love that idea. We've covered so much. There's still heaps of the survey that we haven't covered. There's so many elements in there to talk about. It's been a jam-packed episode three. If you want to see the full CA ANZ remuneration survey, it's on our website in our diversity, equity and inclusion hub. I'll put a link to it so it's easy to find in the show notes. And you can find our gender pay gap playbook for SMPs there as well that we've talked a lot about this episode please rate and review the pod and share with your fellow CAs and your clients too and the podcast has an email so feel free to get in touch podcast at charteredaccountantsanz.com let's start a conversation thank you to Tanache for sharing his story and Ainsley Van Onselen and Charlotte Everett for letting me pick your brains on small firm big impact thanks Gil great to be here anytime Thanks, Gil. That was really enjoyable. Bye-bye.